0: So we are nearing the end of our series on the book of Ephesians, which we started several months ago, back when it was sunny and warm and we were outside. But we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote, and one of the things that I've realized as we've gone through it, and though we've been in the series for quite a while, is there's still a lot more to to be explored here. That any time you read a part of the Bible, any time you read a book of the Bible, and if you've been reading for any period of time, and if you've read any passage of the Bible more than once, you discover there's always something new. There's always something different. And we can always go a little bit deeper, and it's always a challenge for me as a pastor to try and balance that out. We could spend an entire year doing the book of Ephesians and diving deep and exploring all those things, but sometimes it's helpful to look and to try and to see a big picture. And so we started this series on Ephesians using an image from Tim Gombas, and he talks about the drama of Ephesians. Where Ephesians is this drama that we're invited to live into, that it's telling this story of how God is renewing the creation and is renewing it through Jesus Christ, who has been elevated as the cosmic king. And we're invited to play out a part in this. And so part of what we do is we read Ephesians, not simply to learn information, not so we can pass a Bible quiz but so that we can live out the faith that God has called us to live out. And so one of the things that we need to do sometimes with that is try and see the big picture, to see what's going on. And sometimes we can get in, and I said we could spend an entire year, and I've seen pastors do things like that. I've never done, I heard about one pastor who spent three years in the book of Romans. And you could go in and you could see every little verse and spend days on the nuance of a particular word. But sometimes when we do that, reading our Bibles, we miss a big picture. We look and we want to get something out of every single verse, out of every single word, because we recognize that all these words come and are inspired by God. But sometimes when we get too close, we fail to see this big picture of what's going on. And so I want us to look and consider this passage we read today in a big picture way. To see what's going on. So we're in the second half of this letter. We're learning what it looks like to live out this new reality that Paul has called us into. So in the beginning of Ephesians, he's talked about how God has raised us from death to life. How he's created a new humanity. Brought Jews and Gentiles together. And he's created us. And what Eugene Peterson says, the second half of the letter in some sense, is what it looks like to practice resurrection. I like that phrase practicing resurrection, that we have been raised to new life with Christ. That's the language that Paul uses. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and now you've been raised with Christ. And so we're living this new resurrection life out. And part of what that looks like is our day-to-day living. It looks like what it is. It looks like growing up in Christ and maturing in Christ and becoming who we are. And so he's been talking about this from basically chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4 and on. And so we're going to pick up in verses 15 and 17 of chapter 5. And what he says after he's gone through this series of contrasts, he says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And so he begins with this series of contrasts, these different ways of living. And what you notice, what he says is, he says, you need to be wise, not the unwise. What's Wisdom. Wisdom sometimes isn't just knowing the right answers, it's knowing how to apply them. It's knowing how to put these things into action. In other words, it requires discernment. And so when he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, I've used this analogy oftentimes when I teach kids in confirmation stuff, that sometimes we have this picture of God's will as it's a determination for every single thing in life that God has a will and a plan for us, that God's will was that I put on this shirt and this pair of pants today. And then if I hadn't done that, I would have been outside of God's will. Or we, we get into like, there's this particular person I'm supposed to marry and how I act out each and every single day and where I spend every single one of my dollars. And that's one picture of God's will. But that's not the way the Bible talks about God's will. The Bible talks about God's will is what he desires out of us. And so the image I've often used is to say God's will is more like the Iditarod. How many of you are familiar with that? The Iditarod is this giant uh, dog sled race across Alaska. It's like 1,200 miles, crazy distance and stuff. And they have to get from one point to another point. And there are a few checkpoints along the way, but the rest of the way they can go any path they want. This isn't a race course where they have to follow a particular thing. And I think that's maybe a helpful image, a helpful picture of what God's will looks like is there are certain things God wants us to do, but those certainties are more along the lines of God wants us to love our neighbors as he loves our, we love ourselves. That what that looks like for each one of us, we have to use our wisdom, we have to discern what that looks like. What it looks like for Becca to love her neighbor may look a little bit different than what it looks like for Ken to love his neighbor. Even those of you who are married, what it looks like to love your spouse may look different for each one of you. God calls us to be generous and sacrificial givers. It's going to look different for each and every person. When he talks about unwholesome talk but instead using language to build each other up, it's the same thing. And he's saying, what do we do? He says, we're to redeem time make the most of every opportunity redeem the time he says this world is still influenced by the powers and principalities by evil and we're called to proclaim to shine to manifest God's goodness and his light into the world and so this is this contrast that he's doing and so I think as we go into the rest of it it's part of it is that is to say we're called to use our brains to be discerning that God doesn't always spell out each and everything for us. It would be a whole lot easier sometimes, wouldn't it? If we would just get like a voicemail at the beginning of the day, something in our inbox, this letter that drops down and says, here's what I want you to do today, Carl. I want you to talk to this person, and this is what I want you to say to them, and here's how you should do it, and here's what I want you to pray about. But that's not what God does for us. God says, I want you, he gives us guidelines. He gives us pictures. He says, I want you to pray. But God doesn't always tell us what to pray for, does he? I mean, he says certain, he gives general things. We pray for the world. I've lost track of how many countries are there in the world. I don't know. It changes every day, it seems like. There's, there's different. Pray for the people of the world. There are seven and a half, over 7 billion people in the world. It would take a really long time to pray for all of them. Even as we talk like things like Operation Christmas Child and think about all the different countries and all the different things, there's so much, and so we have to be discerning and to think about it. And so as Paul's entering into this, he's saying there's these contrasts. He says, be discerning, be wise. And then he goes into another contrast. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. How many of you use the word debauchery anytime? How many of you even know what it means? It's a crazy living like a unrestrained, un- uncontrolled living. He says, don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And so there's kind of two pictures that Paul is getting at here, is to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by. So instead of losing control, which is the goal oftentimes of alcohol, to re- relieve yourself of your inhibitions, to re- get rid of those. Instead of, he says, when you get drunk on wine, what happens? It cuts down our inhibitions. It cuts down our ability to control. He says, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit, And part of that is about having the spirit guide us, but also part of it is this picture that Paul has used throughout the book of Ephesians, even earlier on in chapter 2, where he's talked about, at the end of chapter 2, he says, "In, in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And so being filled with the spirit isn't simply a command to us as individuals, because when Paul is writing here, he's actually writing to a group of people. Or as we've used the language. Here he's saying when he's saying instead be filled. He's saying all y'all be filled. In other words it's a command to a group. In other words be a place. That demonstrates what it looks like. To be imbued. To be empowered. To be indwelt by God's presence. To live out. To manifest. To say this is a place where God lives. To show ourselves to be a community. In which God dwells. In other words. He's inviting the people of Ephesus and all the others that are hearing this letter to be a place that looks different from the community around them. To not be one that kind of allows free reign, but instead is one that reflects and demonstrates and performs the reality of being God's dwelling place. And so now he's saying that, and now he goes on and says what that looks like. He says, What does it look like to be a community in which God's Spirit lives? He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then in grammar speak, there's a series of participles, okay? But he he gives a command. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he says, this is what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, and what are some of the things that are signs or indications or ways you live out? First of all, you're speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Lord. You're singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, and to say, this is what it looks like. In other words, we're a worshiping community. Part of being a demonstration of God's presence, being a worship community. And just one side note on this, we're because we want to spend most of our time in the later part of the passage here. Notice that you sing to one another. Sometimes when we come in, we sing music, and we, we sang songs earlier today. And Sometimes we think, it's, it's for me. That I... That I and that's part of it. You know, sometimes we, it's helpful. I don't know how many of you are like that, like sometimes there's just a word or a phrase or part of a song that comes to your mind during the week. And you're sitting there, and, and it's a great way, because there's something about music, isn't there, that it stays with us so much better. That I can think of I songs I knew growing up, I still remember those. There's so many things I forget, but music, and it's the same way oftentimes when you're with folks who are older and sometimes near those end stages of life, even people suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's, who are doing ministries in nursing homes and would sit there with people who couldn't carry on much of a conversation with you, but you'd start singing a hymn, and all of a sudden the words would come out. And so there's this power to music, but the power to music isn't simply for me, it's for others. And so when we sing hymns, psalms, spiritual songs, we're singing to one another. So when we say, open my eyes, or when we say, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not just a reminder to us. It's a reminder to the people sitting in the pews next to us. And what goes along with that is the thing we don't like to hear is, sometimes we don't like the songs we're singing. We're like, oh, is that song again? Or like, they just keep saying the same words over and over again. Or, what's with these hymns with all these words? Nobody ever says it. Sometimes when we sing a song, we're singing a song because somebody down the pew from us needs to hear those words. And so we're a community, and so we sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to one another because we may come in and we're like, oh, I am ready to go, God. I have got this. I am flying high. I'm filled with your Spirit, and I can do everything. And there may be somebody behind us who is struggling, and so we can say, the battle belongs to the Lord. We don't need to hear it, but they need to hear it. And so we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. All right, then it gets a little harder, doesn't it? Because now we get into the tricky part, a part that's hard and complex. And I would invite us, first of all, to approach it with humility. To recognize that there are challenges and to recognize that we all approach text differently, that we all come from different backgrounds and contexts, that we all have different histories, we all have different personal histories, we all have different histories of reading the Bible, of things we've heard, and we like to think we just come to the Bible and we just read it as it is, and what we fail to realize is we have been, if you've been around church for more than a week, you've heard different things. If you've heard this passage preached on before, if you've read this passage before, if you've done a Bible study on it. You've heard somebody's interpretation of it. That we don't come with a clean set. There's all these contexts that come into it. And we recognize that the contexts are different things. So, for example, later on in the passage, it talks about slavery. 150 years ago, this passage was a major point of discussion within our own country because there was a debate going on over the issue of slavery prior to the Civil War. And many people used this very same passage to justify slavery here in the United States. The ongoing practice of owning other human beings was used from the Bible. They said, this is what the Bible says. And so as we enter into it, we enter in with a beat of humility to realize that we might be cautious on how we apply these passages because it's been used and misused That doesn't mean we can't understand it. That doesn't mean we can't do things with it. But to recognize that there are things. And to recognize that there's a context here. And the context is a historical context we're going to get into. But also the context of the rest of Scripture. The rest of the Bible which has 59 other times where it talks about what we do with one another. And we're shaped by those. And this idea of wisdom and discernment. And sometimes we have this phrase. And maybe you've heard it. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. But Scott McKnight, a professor at Northern Seminary, formerly from North Park, talks about this, and I like the way he puts it. He says, this idea that we believe all the Bible says and we therefore practice all the Bible says, he says that's hogwash. That's a theological term, hogwash. (laughs) Because he says, we simply don't do that. How many of you kissed one another coming in today? Do you know that's commanded four times? In the New Testament, where Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. When was the last time you washed somebody else's feet? Jesus said, do this. So the idea that we simply take the Bible and do what it says, as McKnight says, is hogwash. That we interpret it, that we take things And we try and understand the context of what's going on. And those implications. And we are all selective in our reading of the Bible. Me included. We choose and we pick and we choose. And it's shaped by so many different things. It's shaped by the culture we grow up in. It's shaped by the people around us. It's shaped by so many. It's shaped even sometimes by the translation of the Bible we use. It's shaped by those little headings that show up in our Bibles that aren't part of the Scripture. This little thing that says instructions for Christian households, which kind of breaks up the flow because you don't recognize that what we're about to see is when it says be filled with the Spirit, the next line where it says submit to one another is a continuation of that. It's another one of those participles. It's another one of those things that follows on for it. All right. So now we get into this part, this part that Karen said is the hard part, the little bit tricky part. And so What's going on here is these is this thing where it's often referred to by scholars as the household codes. And household codes were something common in the ancient world. It was a way to talk about how households were to run. And they looked like these to some extent. They often dealt with the relationship between a husband and a wife, between a, a father and his children, and between a master and his slaves. And we're going to note some differences along the way, but that's what they were. But one of the things we recognize is Paul is talking about pre-existing structures. Paul didn't sit down and say, what do I want to talk about? But he recognized that in the society around him, there were these common things called household codes written dating hundreds of years earlier back to people like Aristotle. and said, this is what it looks like to manage and to run a household. But what I like about what... Or what I think about this is what Michael... I like what Michael Gorman said. Michael Gorman, the scholar, he said this. He said that when we look at this, that there are these pre-existing structures. And Paul is taking cruciform love and saying, okay, here's these pre-existing structures. These household codes about husbands and wives and fathers and children and masters and slaves. And he's applying Jesus to them. In other words, he's teaching us what practicing resurrection looks like. He's saying this is what it looks like. Because all along he's been saying... because. That's part of what it looks like, is we have to know what it looks like in day to day life. Sometimes we're saying, okay, Paul, that's all great things, but what does it look like in my daily life? And he says, okay, you want to talk about daily life? Daily life is being with other people. Daily life is being with other people. And so, what does it look like, back to chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us? What does it look like to exhibit that kind of love? with the people we spend the most time with. With our spouses, if we're married. If we, with our children, if we have children. With masters and slaves. And so he's beginning this. And so here's what Michael Gorman said. He says, the household code then is not an attempt to impose pagan, patriarchal values onto an otherwise Christian value system. He says, rather it is an attempt to apply the notion of mutual submission, of mutual cruciformity, or Christ-like love, to an inherently patriarchal structure, recognizing the Christian household as an alter culture, A-L-T-O, an alternative culture. In other words, Paul is taking this existing system and he's saying within this existing system, this is what cruciform love looks like. And cruciform means cross-shaped. This is what loving Jesus looks like. I mean, we wish sometimes that Paul had just kind of obliterated. It would be so much easier if at the end of this passage, Paul had said Masters, stop owning slaves, just get rid of them. But he doesn't. because he's working within an existing culture, because most likely, and if Paul had said something like that, he would have been thrown in jail right away, but he's trying to get out of message, and, and he's beginning to lay the groundwork, lay the foundation for overturning these things. And he's overturning it within the household, because the household was not just about private ethics. But the household was the center of life. And he's looking at this. And so Paul is talking about this stratified and hierarchical society. And he's setting something up or dismantling it. So Paul includes this here. And he's suggesting something that's different. He's connecting the household to something different. And he's saying, this is what it looks like to live in a non-Christian world but to uphold the gospel. This is what it looks like to live a new life out of the old ways. To take these old ways and live a new life. Now, we could spend a long time digging through these. And I've already spent a long time kind of introducing these. I mean, we could spend a week or two weeks on each part of the household to consider the backgrounds and the words. But what I want to do is just kind of take a big picture look at this and draw some conclusions from that. First of all, verse 21 is the verse that kind of governs everything. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, whatever we believe about everything else that follows, it has to embody Christ-like love. Now notice, when he starts this, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He doesn't single anybody out. In other words, all y'all... Are to submit to all y'all out of reverence for Christ. There's a mutual submission, something that's going on that everybody's and submitting is what? To arrange yourself underneath. It's putting the needs of others above your own. It's humility, it's dying to self. It's the language that he's used earlier. The one of Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. That we put the needs of others. And it's what? Out of reverence for Christ. Again, there's, you know, we talked about debauchery. Reverence is another word we don't use. But out of fear of the Lord, it's, we're seeing that this is what governs everything that happens. It's part of our following Jesus' submission to one another. In other words, whatever we take out of the rest of these things, whatever we take out of instructions to husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters, it has to fit within that. If it somehow contradicts this idea of submission to one another we're misunderstanding and misreading it. And it's saying Jesus is Lord over all, so we submit out of reverence for Him, out of respect to Him. In other words, we don't become more mature in Christ by making the most of ourselves, but only by submitting to one another. So then he starts, first of all, with husbands and wives. And as I was reading this, I was thinking of a man who was a DJ for, in our previous city, that we lived in, Sheboygan, where I served in a church there, and there was a, a local a police officer who also served as a DJ for weddings, and I didn't care for him a whole lot, but that's another story. But anyways, one of the things that he often did at the reception was he would bring the husband and wife out. These newly married couple out onto the, you know, before, on the dance floor and stuff, and he would say, okay, and he would take the husband, and he would take the wife, and he would have the wife put her hand there, and then he would take the husband's hand and put it on top of the wife's hand. And then he would look at them with all seriousness and he'd say, okay, I want you to remember this moment. And he'd look at the husband and he says, because this is the last time you'll ever have the upper hand. <laughs> and it was kind of it's just a really bad joke. But but also part of what he got at and he made other jokes along those lines about you know wearing the pants and ball and chain and stuff was there was an image that he was connecting into that is very much a part of our culture that talks about marriage in terms of power and structure. And the assumption behind the words that he said there was that someone has to have the upper hand in marriage. Whereas some people say, you know, well, we see who wears the pants in the family, right? Right? And that's the idea of what? Who's in charge? And there's this picture, this idea that goes behind that. That someone has to be in charge. That there's some structure that goes on to it. We think of marriage as some sort of power struggle. And Paul says the exact opposite. He says this isn't about a power struggle. This isn't about trying to get the upper hand. Because what? It all falls under that verse 21. Out of... Submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so he begins with the wives. And interestingly, and I always wonder about this in the translations, but every commentator I read about five or six different commentaries on this, note that the word submit does not appear in the Greek in verse 22. But it's simply saying, wives to your husbands. As you do to the Lord. In other words, it's connecting what the wives are doing to this submission above. And it's saying, as to the Lord. In other words, our submit, it's part of our submission to Jesus. So for wives, it's saying, part of our submission to Jesus is submission to husbands. It's the basis, it's the motivation, it's the qualification. But what it doesn't say is submit to your husbands because he's better than you. It doesn't say submit to your husband because he has the power. It doesn't say submit to your husband because he has the authority. It's saying that part of living out the life of Jesus is submitting to one another. Which means, wives, if you're married to someone, one of the one another's is your husband. And so again, we're not going to have time because... Then it gets really complicated because there's this idea of what the head means and the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament and going back all the way to Genesis 1 through 3 and connecting all these things and everything it says about marriage. And we realize that it gets really complicated because all of a sudden, down in verse 32, he says, what? This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you were talking about marriage. So we're not going to dive deep into all that because it would take a really, really long time. But what I want us to notice, first of all, is he addresses the wives, and he's this call to them to submit because he's already told everyone to submit. And so he's saying to the wives, this is part of what it looks like. You're submitting to your husband. And one of the things that's unique here, and why I said that Paul is taking this structure, this thing that existed already in structures before, is Paul is giving moral authority to the wives, This wasn't part of the typical household code. There's a great uh, book by Larry Hurtado called Destroyer of the Gods. I would have wished I could have come up with that title for a book. Destroyer of the Gods. And Larry Hurtado writes this history of the early church. And he talks about how the Christians lived out their early life. And because of their witness and their testimony and their beliefs, they destroyed the Roman gods. They took down this system. And so it was the destroyer of the gods. And he said this, He says, when Paul addresses women like this, they are viewed as moral agents, and he says this, then they are therefore, quote, capable and responsible to respond to exhortations to them. In other words, when Paul addresses wives, and he addresses them first, he's raising up their dignity. Oftentimes, the household codes that were given in ancient times, they didn't have anything to say to the wives. They just said, to the men, men rule over your house." Husbands, rule over your wives. It might have said, wives, submit to your husbands. But in other words, just listen to that. But it had nothing to say to the husband. But he's saying, this is what their submission looks like, to love as Christ loved the church, giving ourselves up. And so wives are not told, notice, it doesn't say anywhere in the passage, wives, obey your husbands. Doesn't say that. His wife, submit to your husband, just like everybody else is submitting to one another. All right, then it goes on to the husbands. And here, if you were an ancient listener, you would have said, okay, yeah, but here's where he tells the husbands to rule over their households. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says, instead to the husbands, what does your submission look like? You are to love as Christ loved the church and give yourself up. In a society where men could do whatever they wanted sexually, here's a profound call for holiness and honor. saying, husbands, love your, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Give yourself. In other words, you pour yourself over them, and you see them in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. And so there's this mutuality that's going on here between these two. We see in marriages submission to one another that looks like respect and love. There is oneness, not dissimilarity. There's a reciprocity going on. So Paul's painting this picture of something that looks different, where in the ancient society it would have been just about husbands, you need to manage your household, you need to rule over your wife, and you need to make sure she submits to you. Paul never says that here. He doesn't say wives submit to your husband. and Husbands, make sure your wives do that. Instead, he paints a picture of mutual submission. He says, Wives, you submit to your husband, and husbands, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. In other words, her needs come before your needs. And so there's this dance of submission where both of them are what? Putting their needs before the needs of the other. And then he moves on to children. And again, here he gives moral agency to the children. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In other words, don't obey your parents just because they're your parents. But instead, as part of your service to the Lord, you're obeying them. This is what your submission looks like. It looks like honor and obedience. And why? Because it's part of our submission to the Lord. So that it may go well with you. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Don't exasperate your children. My kids like that one. It's like, yeah, you exasperate us, Dad. <laughs> but, but, but part of what it's saying is, notice is oftentimes when I am ruling over my children, if you will, which again, language not here, it says don't exasperate your children. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It doesn't say, parents, manage your children for your own expectations, because that's what we so often do as parents. The instructions we give them, the boundaries we give them are all for my own convenience. Kids, you need to go to bed. Why? Because I want you to go to bed because I'm tired and I don't... I need you to do these things. But so much of the way parents often manage their children is only for the benefit, not of the children, but who's benefit for? It's for the parents, right? But he's saying here, in contrast to those ancient codes, which would so often be about manage your children so that you have a good household and they're working hard. to say, manage them. In other words... Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's the primary instruction given to them. And then he moves on to slavery. And again, we could spend a long time on this picture of slavery, recognizing that slavery in the ancient world was very different than what we think of as slavery. There were certainly some similarities. Estimates put that in the ancient Roman world, it was likely that 30 to 50% of the population were slaves. Now, people could be slaves for any number of reasons. Some could have been conquered in battle. Some could have simply been debt slaves. In other words, you racked up this massive debt and you had no way to pay it off. There were no bankruptcy courts. You simply sold yourself into slavery to someone until you could pay it off, and then you could get out of that. Some slaves were highly educated and managed households. But slavery was not the picture we have of slavery here in the United States, which was a race based chattel system. Just based on this. But it was very different. But it was certainly open to abuse. That's not to paint the picture of slavery in the ancient world as this like, oh, it was all kind of good and everybody left. No. Again, instructions given in the ancient household codes were about managing and mastering those slaves. And so, like I said, the question is, why doesn't Paul just end it here? But we see that he subverts it because I'm honestly, there's a challenge. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. I'm thinking, no. Slaves, you need to get out of this system. And part of what Paul is working with is in in this system and recognizing that it needs to change. And he's beginning by giving them dignity. But he says, obey them not only to win their favor when they're as I am you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God. In other words, you have another master. And that other master is Jesus. So we look to God when performing tasks for human mastery. And that's why I said this passage gets so hard because we say, wait a minute. How do we apply this passage to today? Because you know, slavery is so different, we recognize, like common sense says, owning another person is just wrong. But he's beginning here. Paul is beginning to lay the foundation to subvert it, and we see that especially when he says to the masters, "And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way as what? In other words, submitting to them, loving to them. In other words, masters, you're supposed to submit to one another. In other words, you're submitting the slave." Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. In other words, the owner is stripped of privilege and judged by how they treat another person. And there is no favoritism with him. So there's this whole series. And so he's taking these household codes, and we're thinking about what those look like. And so that's why I said, I didn't want to get into each one, but I want to take and draw some big conclusions for it. And one of the things that we see as we read these passages from Paul is there is a new society where all are treated with justice and dignity. He's changing what it looks like. In other words, it's not just about the comfort and control of the patriarch, of the man of the family. But this asks men to do exactly the opposite of what Roman law allowed. Roman law allowed the male in the household to do whatever he wanted because his wives, his children, his slaves were considered his property. He could use them discarded them however he wanted. And here Paul is asking them to do exactly the opposite, but instead to love them as he loves himself, as he loves his own body. He's asking them, and he's saying, to see each and every person as truly human. And so Aristotle, the philosopher who wrote some of these household codes, said this. He said, Hence there are by nature various classes of rulers and ruled. For the free rule's, For the free rules the slave, the male the female, and the man the child in a different way. See how he starts it? First of all, it's it's, the male rules over. And Paul has already said something very different. Nowhere does he use that language, ruling, but instead of loving. He says, and all possess the various parts of the soul, but possess them in different ways. For the slave has not got the deliberative part of it all. In other words, the slave doesn't have fully a soul. He's just got part of it. And the female has it, but without full authority. Well, a child has it, but in an undeveloped form. In other words, the ancient household codes often put men, and then everybody else had, like, they were, they were someone. And Paul says, no. He begins to say, we are all one in Christ. He begins to raise them up and say, no, we're all different. And so we begin to recognize that we live in a society where we live in a different way. And so as Tim Gabbas says, he says, but among God's New people, there is no place for control, domination, manipulation, or exploitation. Rather, mutual respect and service is to be the norm. And so we begin to see Paul is overturning power. So we begin to ask ourselves in our own society, do we treat everyone with dignity and respect? Do we submit to one another? Do we recognize that each person has moral authority? How do we work within the systems of power? Because the reality is there are power structures at work in all of our lives. And Paul's inviting us to subvert those power structures, not to use our power over, but to use power under. Second point I want to make out is is that new humanity is ordered with Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. He's saying that all have value. He takes these culturally defined roles and gives us Christ-defined roles. A role doesn't come from comparison to some cultural model, but the role model is Christ. And it takes work to figure this out. But he's saying... If you go back and read this, notice how many times it uses something like in Christ or just as Christ. And to say this is the center of the relationships. That when we think about the way we order relationships, are we determining the structure and the values and how we live out these relationships from something that society has taught us or from something that Jesus has taught us? And are we living the way of Jesus governed by all these other things? Because again, If we were to just yank Ephesians 5, rip it out of our Bible and start there and just say, okay, wives, submit to your own husbands. If we haven't read chapters 1 through 4, where it talks about all these things, to no longer live as the Gentiles, but to love one another, to to submit to one another, to get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgive one another, walk in the way of love and love each other just as Christ loved you. All those things govern over when we come to the point that to submit to one another. And wives, submit to your husband, and husbands, love your Christ. So there's this new humanity, and it's ordered in a different way. And we conduct our relationships with love and honor, not position and power. We live in an age which one of our primary sins is the sin of individualism. That I want my way. That I want it my own way. I want it my own way with my spouse, with my children, with the people that I work with, with all the people around me. And what the way of Jesus, and that's what Paul is getting at here with this whole big passage of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, to be a community, is to say, if the world were to look in, because to be a community filled with the Spirit is to be a place where God lives with His presence and people see the presence of God living in us. And if church, if people were to look in and see the presence of God, what would they see? Would they see a community that's ordered in this way, where we're not focused on power, but instead focused on submission, where we're not focused on getting my own way? Imagine how many issues within marriages, within families, within relationships, within friendships, within businesses, with so many places would simply be solved if everyone wasn't so concerned with getting their own way, but instead living the way of Jesus, which says, I put the needs of others in front of my own, which makes then this interesting dance if we think about just back to marriage. So the wife is putting the needs of the husband ahead of her own, and the husband is putting the needs of the wife ahead of her own, and there's this dance going on. And you say, well, who gets the final say? It's not about who gets the final say. It's not about whose hand is on top or who wears the pants. It's about demonstrating the love of Jesus and giving fully to them. And so Paul invites us to be that new humanity, to live as a community of people shaped by the power of the Spirit, that loves others as Christ loved us, that gives up our rights. So what I would invite you to do is to practice resurrection this week, to think about where am I using my position, where am I using who I am to use it in the place of power over others, and how can I flip that over and live the way of Jesus and use my power, my privilege, my position instead not to rule over, but to serve others. So ask God to help you do that this week. To think about your relationships. Because the reality is you're thinking, well, I'm not married. I don't have kids. None of the... I don't have any slaves, which is good. <laughs> but to think through all these things and say, okay, I may not have some of those, or I may be in some of those, but how am I using my relationships? How do I exist in my relationships? And am I focused on my power and my authority, or am I focused on the way of Jesus and submitting to one another? of arranging my life under another, of giving my rights up, of giving myself for the sake of others. It's what Christ has done for us, and it's what He calls us to do for one another. Amen.